Okay, let's read. We're going to be in John 11, page 1078. And these Bibles will be helpful if you've got one in front of you. I'm going to read all the way from verse 45 of John 11 through to verse 11 of John chapter 12. This is a monumental portion of Scripture from which we could spend many, many weeks. Therefore, therefore, the previous passage was about Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus' friend has been dead for four days. Mary and Martha, Lazarus' friend, sent to Jesus. Jesus delays. Lazarus dies. Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth. Lazarus comes to new life. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. Sanhedrin was the ruling Jewish religious council. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. Then one of them named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. And not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God, to bring them together and make them one. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. Therefore, Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the people of Judea. Instead, he withdrew to a region near the wilderness, to a village of Ephraim, where he stayed with his disciples. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, many went up from their country to Jerusalem for their ceremonial cleansing before the Passover. They kept looking for Jesus. And as they stood in the temple court, they asked one another, What do you think? Didn't he come into the festival at all? But the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that anyone who found out where Jesus was should report it so that they might arrest him. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served, while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about half a liter of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came, not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. But on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. As you hear last week, we were looking at the story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. What happens is Lazarus gets sick, and Mary and Martha, his sisters, send a message to Jesus asking Jesus to come quickly and rescue, but Jesus delays and Lazarus dies. So if you're in trouble, you want rescue fast, not slow. I had an experience not like Lazarus, but an experience of needing rescue myself on uh, 
Monday. Monday is my day off, and uh, Grace you know, doesn't work on Mondays either, so we normally spend Mondays together, but I thought it would be part of um, Grace Hepsey in school. So I went out for a bike ride on my own, and I um, went over uh, Ballard Down, above Old Harry, for a quick bit of breakfast. And uh, there's a path there called, have you not got it? Is it gone? No, but it's not there. Oh, it's a shame, it's a nice picture. Get there in a minute. Uh, it gets across Ballard Down, and there's a path down which all local mountain bikers know called Stone Bench, and it's called the Stone Bench Path, because it's Stone Bench. And it's a path down to Cornish. And uh, it's not particularly difficult, there it is, but it's on a quite a slope, which psychologically makes it feel much more difficult than it is. Anyway, it's, I've been down there plenty of times before. But on Monday, I do not know what happened because I was going down, and the next one I was not going down, the next one I was on my back, in a patch of brambles. And the scary thing, or the weird thing, was that I found that I could not escape because the brambles effectively formed a net because of the angle of the slope. The brambles were like a cargo net, not touching the ground, and I was just suspended in the brambles. And I was lying there in the brambles, making quite a lot of noise. Partly it was because I was shouting at myself, what on earth did you do, you muppet? How did you do that? End up on your back in the brambles. Partly because I was in quite a lot of pain. And uh, partly because I realized that I was completely stuck. There was nothing that I could do. And uh, I was just suspended. There was nothing to hold on to, nothing to leverage off. And if you try and move in a pile of brambles, you tend to get more stuck in the pile of brambles. And so there I was, entirely trapped. And so I was moaning and groaning and shouting and praying, Lord, please send some rescue. And I was thinking about what I preached the day before and how when you want rescue, you want it to come quickly, not slowly. I'm thinking, this is going to make a great sermon illustration. <laughs> and so I was, there I was, lying on my back, my legs waving the air, trying to extricate myself, unable to extricate myself, and thinking, how long am I going to be here as I get as the bramble thorns work themselves deeper into various parts of my body and things become generally more uncomfortable and difficult and then after a few minutes, this is the old journey about 500 or so, a walker came up the path. I saw his head emerging out of the bramble patch. And I said, can you please help me? And he was able to reach out his hand, take off my hand, and pull me out of the bramble. You are an answer to prayer. And he was. When you are in trouble, you want rescue to come quickly. And uh, I was like, just a couple of weeks back, John was preaching from John 10, this old good shepherd about what it's like when a sheep is cast on its back and you cannot get up. I was that party on my back, unable to get up without someone coming to rescue. And so I made it home, and uh, Felicity was a strong antiseptic glued to my back, laughing her head off, it has to be said, which is appropriate for a teenage daughter. That's what she wanted to do. She also, she also said, ah, this is going to make a great sermon illustration. There's a preacher's tissue. When... When Grace got home, she was much more sympathetic. We all, we all, we all played out our appropriate roles. Dad doing something stupid, teenage daughter laughing at him, mum being sympathetic. But everybody was happy. It was a good day all round. Now, if you are a Christian, you know that you, without Christ, were like a cast sheep. That without Christ, we're spiritually on our back and unable to get up. And the Gospel of John is full of metaphors, pictures about sheep. And where Jesus, where the whole story is driving to, where the whole Gospel is driving to, is how Jesus will gather his flock. And so just before the raising of Lazarus, there is 
this story, Jesus tells the, the picture, paints a picture about how he is the good shepherd. And in John 10, Jesus says, My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. This is Jesus' mission, to, to gather the flock of God's people. And that mission makes the cross inevitable because what Jesus does is Jesus claims to have the authority of, he claims equality with the Father. And if Jesus is going to gather his flock, if he's going to get his sheep off their backs and gather them together, then he has to have that authority. He has to have the authority to, to, of the Father to gather God's people. But that authority is an authority which, as well as gathering God's people, also divides because people oppose Jesus in his claim to authority and equality with the Father, and they try to kill him. And then Jesus underscores what he says by raising Lazarus from the dead. The most amazing miracle. Lazarus has been dead for four days. Lazarus is rotting in the tomb, but Jesus calls him out alive. Uh, an extraordinary demonstration of his authority. And as a result, it says, verse, in verse 45 of chapter 11 and verse 11 of chapter 12, many believed in Jesus. Because of this demonstration of authority, raising Lazarus from the dead, many believed in him. But also as a result, many opposed him and even wanted to kill him. And they wanted to kill Lazarus for good measure too. And they think, well, Lazarus, he's already been dead once, and they want to kill him again. They want to get him as well as Jesus. And of course, Lazarus is an absolute showstopper. The whole story is a showstopper. Wouldn't you like to know more about Lazarus? And clearly people were curious about Lazarus. It says in chapter 12, verse 9, that large crowds gathered to see Jesus, yes, but also to see Lazarus. Why? Because Lazarus had been dead and now he's alive. People want to see Lazarus, want to know more about Lazarus. And I'd have wanted to see Lazarus if I'd been there. I've got questions. I've got questions I'd like to ask Lazarus. One question I'd like to know is whether he was killed by the authorities as well. We're not told that. Did he get killed or did he escape? And I'd want to know about his experience of being dead. This is one of the ultimate questions of human life. What happens when you die? What is it like? The plot line of countless stories, books, movies that we tell. Back from the dead. I can tell you what it's like. And uh, in the Bible, there are a handful of people, we're told, who are raised from the dead. In the Old Testament, there are three people around the ministries of the prophets Elijah and Elisha. There are three people who are raised to life around their ministry. In, in the Gospels, there are three people that we're told that Jesus raises from the dead, Lazarus being one of them. At the end of the Gospel of Matthew, it says that at the moment that Jesus was crucified and died, the tomb slip open, and it says many saints, godly people, came to life and went to Jerusalem. We're not told who they were or how many of them were, but it says that some came to life at that moment when Jesus died on the cross. And in the book of Acts, there are two accounts of people being raised from the dead. The Apostle Peter causes Tabitha to be raised from the dead, and the Apostle Paul causes a young man called Eustace to be raised from the dead. So across the whole sweep of Scripture, uh, uh, a sweep of Scripture covering thousands of years, lots of different places, lots of different authors, there are eight named people who we're told were raised from the dead. And then there's whatever number of unnamed people that Matthew 
So a handful of people in the Bible are described as being raised from the dead. So one of the interesting things about that is that we are never told what it was like. We're never told about their experiences. At no point are we told what Lazarus' experience was, or what Tabitha's experience was, or what Eutychus' experience was, or what the Shudamite widow's son's experience was when they were raised to new life. They don't show and tell. The point of these moments of extraordinary encounter with God is to demonstrate the extraordinary authority of God even over death. That God has authority even over death. We're never told about their experience of being dead. I mean, this is a bit of an aside, but just a passing caution. One of the things that seems to happen every 10 years or so in the Christian world nowadays is when somebody comes around saying they've been raised from the dead, they write a book, they then a lecture tour, everybody's got to see them, they talk about their experience what it was like. I just have to be cautious about that. I'd be nervous of those kind of stories because if the Bible, if the Lord wants us to know what that was like, well, we've got eight people described as being raised from the dead in the Bible, and we're not told what happened to them, what their experience was. So just have a little bit of wisdom and caution with people coming around saying those kind of stories. But it's not only Lazarus that makes me curious. I also wonder about the thought processes of the authorities. They give us give this order, this instruction, that if anybody sees Jesus in Jerusalem, they have to let them know so they can arrest him. But I wonder what they're thinking, because the whole deal is, uh, their problem is that Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead. Now, that is a pretty impressive demonstration of authority and power. And didn't they think that if Jesus had the power to raise somebody from the dead, somebody who'd been dead for four days, didn't they think that Jesus probably also had the power to avoid arrest? And weren't they even a little bit scared? I think I would be. If somebody had raised somebody to life who'd been dead for four days, I think I would be a little bit cautious about getting into a confrontation with that person because probably there's all kinds of other things they could do as well. But the authorities don't seem to have that caution, don't seem to have that nervousness. That's curious to me. They seem to be so locked into their own agenda that they can't see what's right in front of their faces in terms of who Jesus is. And I'd suggest that actually we can be a little bit like that. We can do that kind of thing all the time. That we can get an idea into our heads, we can formulate our plans, and we can miss what actually is essential and crucial. That's, that's part of the reason why no politician, no political party can ever fix everything or even conflict. Because we just, as humans, so often miss the thing that we ought to see. But there is a bigger, a grander, and a more far-sighted plan being enacted here. That's God's plan. And we see that in the words spoken by the high priest Caiaphas. So the religious council, the Sanhedrin, gather, and they despair. What are we going to do about Jesus? What are we going to do about him? He's even raising dead people to life. And their concern is that Jesus is going to upset the status quo. They're, they're concerned that Jesus will start to provoke an insurrection which will provoke the Roman occupying power into drastic action. And that is not actually an ill-founded fear. This is a fear which goes to the very center of their national story, because 600 years previously to this, the Babylonians had been the colonial power who were occupying and dominating Israel. And at that time, King Zedekiah, who was a puppet king, a bit like Caiaphas was a puppet high priest. Zedekiah installed by the Babylonians, Caiaphas eventually installed by the Romans. A puppet king and a puppet high priest. 
Zedekiah the king rebelled against the king of Babylon, and as a consequence, the Babylonians came, they destroyed the temple, and they carried the people of Judah into exile. And that was the most traumatic and defining and scarring moment experienced in the nation's history and completely defined how these people 600 years later were thinking because they're in a very similar situation. 600 years before, it's been the Babylonians. Now it's the Romans. The Babylonians have destroyed the temple, held the people into exile. If they're trouble, the Romans might do the same thing. And into this concern, Caiaphas speaks the prophetic word. It's the word that through one death, life will come to the whole nation for the entire flock. Let's read it again. Uh, Chapter 11, verse 49. Then one of them named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. And not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. Now, there's lots that's fascinating about this. Caiaphas is high priest, but he is certainly not a godly man. The high priest is meant to stand between God and the people. He's meant to represent the people to God, and he's meant to represent God to the people. He's meant to be the intermediary, the intercessory between God and the people. But Caiaphas isn't that. Caiaphas is not a godly man. But Caiaphas speaks this word of prophecy, that somehow something about his position as high priest means that God uses him. God still uses him as a mentor. And this is another sign of God's sovereignty. God can speak through people, even people who are rebelling against him. God can use whoever he wants to use. And what Caiaphas prophesies prophesies is amazing. What, What Caiaphas prophesies in theological terminology is what we call substitutionary atonement. He prophesies the substitutionary atonement of Christ. That Jesus, the one who has power over death, which we know because he just raised Lazarus to new life, that Jesus would die in our place so that we could live. That Jesus would be the substitute and stand in our place. He would atone. He would make peace between us and God. That's what Caiaphas prophesied, not knowing what he was doing. And that prophetic statement of Christ's substitutionary atonement goes right to the heart of Christianity. Well, the heart of Christianity is this conviction, understanding, belief, knowledge that we were far from God. We were like half sheep. We were on our back spiritually, unable to get up, rescue ourselves. But God in Christ steps into our place. It's not even that he reaches out a hand and pulls us out of the brambles. No, Jesus is the one who actually gets into the brambles himself. He is our substitute. He takes our place. He dies our death. And his death makes our life taking communion shortly, and when we do that, we do that week by week, proclaiming this truth, that Jesus is the one who stood in our place, that he died our death, that we might live. As we take the bread and we take the wine, the symbols of his body and his blood, proclaiming our faith, our trust, our belief, our hope in the life that is ours in Christ because he died our death in our place. The significance of, the real significance of, of course, what happened to Lazarus in this story, because the raising of Lazarus to new life is a, it's a miracle that causes a fresh degree of confrontation between Jesus and the religious authorities. 
So the raising of Lazarus to new life is also a foretaste of what was going to happen to all God's people. That resurrection is coming. The reality is that Lazarus would die again. We don't know whether he was killed by the authorities or whether he lived into blissful old age and then died peacefully in his sleep at the age of 101. We're not told. But Lazarus certainly died a second death. But Lazarus will be raised to new life, as will all God's people. There will be a resurrection after which there will be no more dying. And Lazarus' temporary resurrection points to that. And that then explains what happens next in the story, which is Mary's anointing of Jesus. And for many of us, this is a very familiar story, but we shouldn't miss how extraordinary it is. It says that Mary took up half a litre of pure nard. Now, half a litre is a lot of nard. It's very expensive. Uh, nard comes from uh, the Himalayas, from a honeysuckle-like plant that grows in the Himalayas in the poor Indian China. And uh, you can buy it. I've got some off Amazon this week. You can buy 10 milliliters of an essential oil. It says this natural essential oil is a spiritual oil used to relax the mind, improve sleep, and relieve pain, all of which might be very helpful when you listen to me talk. Ten, ten milliliters for nine quid. Is that 250 quid for, 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 for half, a, half a liter? Uh, I thought it'd be interesting actually to uh, do a little experiment here because we're actually quite comfortable that we could see how far this goes. Just put a drop or two in your hand and let's pass it around, see how much, how long the bottle lasts, and let's see what this thing of nard is like. So, for us today, it would cost about 450 pounds for half a litre of nard. In first century Palestine, it would have been way more expensive. You can have the same supply chains. A person comes from the Himalayas, and 500 millilitres of fine half a litre was a huge mess, a huge amount, and it was hugely expensive. And Jesus says this is a year's wages. In our terms, this is thousands and thousands of pounds worth. And Mary pours this huge amount of perfume on the feet of Jesus as an act of lavish devotion. But Jesus says that it's going to mean, it means more than that. It's actually, it's a, it's a prophetic act. Because what Mary is doing speaks of what's going to happen to Jesus, that he's going to die. And what we see then is the story that both Caiaphas and Mary prophesy, even though neither of them realize they're doing it. Caiaphas doesn't know he's prophesying, but God speaks through him. And Mary doesn't really realize her actions are prophetic, but they are. Both Caiaphas and Mary, in their words and their actions, speak of Christ's coming death. But of course, what the story reveals is their very different heart attitudes. And so, well, what I want to finish with is, is by us thinking ourselves into the, the place of a different group of people in the story and asking the question, where are you, or even more, who are you in this story? One group we can think our way into is the leaders. And the leaders, the religious leaders, they seem to be anxious people. They've got, they've got an agenda, and they don't want any deviation from that agenda. They certainly don't want God messing up their plan. And this means that they miss the very thing which they claim they most want. 
what they say they're looking for is the Messiah. What they say they're looking for is the rightful heir of David to sit on David's throne. That's what they say they're looking for. But when that Messiah, when that son of David appears, they don't want him. They miss the thing they most want and the things they most need. And it could be that you're in something like the shoes or the sandals of those religious leaders today. That you've got your plans, you've got your agenda, and you don't want it messed with. And it might be that that's rooted in a kind of anxiety. You've got your plans for your kids things you want to give them, the opportunities you want them to have, and you don't want that mess with. You've got your plans for your house, financial plans, things you want to do, and for your retirement, things you want to get mapped out, and work done. You've got your plans for your career, how you want to build that, and you don't want your plan, your agenda messed with. And the tragedy of these leaders is that their anxiousness about their own agenda leads them to rebel against God, and ultimately does lead to their ruin. And this is what happens when we try to be God. And it feels like that's what this religious council is doing. They're meant to speak of God, represent God to the people, but it feels they're actually trying to be God in the way of trying to control the agenda. And so it might be that today what you need to do is to lay your agenda and actually lay your anxiety before God, to trust and to trust. And will Jesus mess with your agenda? Yes, he will. He will make demands upon you in terms of how you raise your kids and how you try and keep plans what you're going to do with your house and how you're going to build your career and how you're going to organize your retirement. Jesus will mess with the whole thing. That's what Jesus does. That's a better way to do it. Not to try and be God ourselves, but to trust him as God. Let him be the one who sets the agenda. When we take communion, it might be that you need to come before Jesus and confess that you're done. I'm trying to control my agenda the whole time, and actually that's rooted in these anxieties. And I'm going to entrust them to you. And I'm trust that even if you mess with my plans, that will make things better rather than worse. That this is the right way to go. It might be that you're in the leader's shoes. It might be that you're in the shoes of the crowd who gathered to see Jesus and who gathered to see Lazarus. They're curious about Lazarus. They're curious about Jesus. But I wonder if a lot of the time that crowds are actually missing the point. The, the thing is that crowds run with curiosity provoking. We see something curious happening, we run to see what's going on. But usually that doesn't cause real change. And you see that is the case in this story because just a week later, we get to Calvary, we get to the cross, and by that time there's not much of a crowd left. Those who were curious are no longer so curious. And what's happened here is that someone, Lazarus, is being raised from the dead, and that attracted his attention. But what they actually needed to do was move past mere curiosity into genuine belief, into genuine faith in Jesus. There's nothing, there's nothing wrong with curiosity in itself. That's one of the implications of the made to the Alpha course we're going to be starting in a couple of weeks. If you're curious, come and explore. There's nothing wrong with curiosity. Curiosity is good. But curiosity alone is not enough. What we're looking for is for, in the end, people to move towards real faith. And it might be that you're here this morning you're, and you're in some way curious about Jesus. You've heard what he's like, you've heard from you what he does, you're curious. My urgency for you would be to step beyond curiosity into the risky adventure of faith, where you say, Jesus, I'm going to really believe in you, trust you with my hope and faith. It might be, and this is a difficult one, it might be that you're standing in Jesus' place today. 
Judas, we see someone who is self-serving, but dresses that, that up as wanting to be seen as being in the right, on the right side of the argument. He's, he's got a pretended concern for the poor. This could have been sold. The year's worth of wages is a huge amount of money. It could have been sold, could have been used for the poor, when actually his concern was for himself. What Judas is screaming about inside is the missed opportunity. There's a huge amount of value here which he could have got his hands on, and it's been wasted. It's been poured on the feet of Jesus and running over a sword. What a waste. The things it could have been used for, that could have been an asset. And I wonder whether Judas even knew the lie he was telling. Because when we get into a pattern of self-justifying thoughts and self-justifying behaviors, we become incredibly blind. We get so used to lying about our motives that we don't even know we're doing it. It's a very human trait. It's not just Judas, it's common across the human race. We lie to ourselves about our real motives. We think, we say we're standing up for what is right, but really we're just standing up for ourselves. It's a very easy trap to fall into. It's all too easy, all too human to become self justifying. We, we set a different standard for others than we do for ourselves. We do that. Other people are doing things for which we condemn them. We do the same things and we have the excuse of why we've done it. It's a very human trait. And it might be that that's you here. And it is incredibly difficult and incredibly painful to admit. To admit. To recognize. I have been engaging in self-justifying thoughts and actions. And actually the problem is me, not other people. And the tragedy of Judas is that Judas didn't see this about himself until after he betrayed Jesus. And Jesus was killed. And Judas took the money and then he killed himself. And his remorse at what he had done. And self-justifying thoughts and behaviors probably won't lead us to that kind of remorse and that kind of satisfaction until brutally death we see ourselves. And so if you are in that place, what we need is to allow Jesus, the good shepherd, to set us on, the, on our feet. What we need is Jesus, the good shepherd, to take us by the hand and get us out of the thorns and the briars of our self-reflection and allow him to work truth into our hearts again, honesty and truth. And then the last character in the story, of course, is Mary. Mary, who displays unreserved, unreserved devotion. And to be honest, it's embarrassing. It's embarrassing that Mary does this. It's socially embarrassing. The dinner, and there's a lot of guests there, all kinds of people, and she's behaving like this. And the extravagance of what she does is embarrassing. It's, it's way too much. Unless she poured it on her feet. But 500 milliliters, half a liter would have gone everywhere. Where are we at with our bottle? How far that there? Where is it? Is it still going around? Oh, it's gone a lot. It's got 10 mil. It's gone a lot of people. 500 mil. That's a nice bottle. How many more times have 500 been poured? 50. 50 times as much. Poured out from the feet of Jesus. Too much. It's way too much. It's way too much. And the intimacy is embarrassing. And she's wiping his 
the hair. The whole thing is just embarrassing, but Mary is not embarrassed to be the outcast. She's not afraid of being accused of making a scene. Because this is Jesus, who she loves because he loves her. And this is Jesus, who has raised her back from the dead. And so Mary is not embarrassed to be embarrassing. The Bible commentator, Effie Brunner, in his commentary on, on the Gospel of John says this, which I think is just so wonderful. He's American, but it seems very British sentiment. The text teaches emotionally suspicious persons like myself have a heart. People are much more than emotional creatures, of course, but they are nothing less. And we hold a type who gives people a little space, or so not too much, I guess. What we see in Mary is an incredibly emotional, incredibly embarrassing display of affection and love towards Jesus. And it might be that actually what we need, what you need, gives you a little bit more space to be a little bit more embarrassing in your devotion to Jesus. And not to be so anxious when others are embarrassing when they're just basically devoting to Jesus. Now, of course, we don't need emotion for the sake of emotion. We're not looking for emotion for emotion's sake. But we do want devotion to Jesus. And so even what we're doing this week as we gather tonight to worship and as we gather during the week to pray, let's do that with Mary-like devotion. Come wanting to pour out lavishly our love on the feet of Jesus because he loves us and he is the one who has reached down to sit in our place and rescued us. Let us come and see. Tarsus prophesied that Jesus would die for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. That is the great hope of the gospel. That's the story for so many of us in this room we've been gathered into the one love because we're scattered people with God and Jesus. And he loves us. And poured out not just half a litre of mind-blowing or expensive perfume, but poured out his own blood in order that we might be saved. Amen. Would you stand with me? Let's pray. one who died, but yes, the whole flock, the scattered flock from the nation to be gathered. Lord, we thank you that that's what you have been doing these 2,000 years, that the gospel has gone forth to the nations and now your flock is being gathered, has been gathered from the peoples of the earth, and thank you that we're caught up in that. And I pray, Lord, that even as we, even in this room now, there's a smell of nars in the air, I pray that we would have a fresh sense of the amazing love of God that rests in us. The grace, the mercy, the kindness of Jesus, our Saviour, who's taken our place, seen our sacrifice, that we might be raised to life. Jesus, I pray that as we come and take communion now, that you would, you would minister to our hearts. I pray that if we need to do some business with you, if we need to lay some things before you, if there's things we need to sort out, get rid of, the brambles we need to be untangled from, that as we come to the table, as we come and take bread and wine, we would know your kind, your gracious ministering to us. We would know the effective power and authority that there is in Jesus Christ. And the words you speak and have the Holy Spirit amongst us. The fragrance of God. Amen. Minister, heal us. 
formed in our bank accounts and put cards on our floor when we walk in the house, call us Lord, we need to know your voice. Minister to us, Lord God. And let's be like Mary, a whole hearted.